Okay, if you would please turn to the book of Genesis. I'm going to be reading Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Genesis 6, 1 through 8. Let's pray. Father, I, I ask for your continued presence, the power of your presence, the presence that causes true worship and adoration of you to continue now in our midst over your word. May we behold you. May we contemplate you. May we love what you reveal about yourself to us this morning. In Genesis, in your word, in your scripture. So therefore to that goal, to that end, help me. Help me in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're there, Genesis chapter 8, I mean 6, verses 1 through 8. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. They were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible word to us. This is the 11th week in the series, God's purpose in redemptive history, as we now are trying to follow the timeline of Holy Scripture in the way God laid it out. The last time we were together in this series, we saw from Genesis 3.15, God promised to put enmity between the woman's seed and the serpent's seed. And we saw that the seed of the woman was Abel. And then he's killed, and then he's replaced by Seth. And there's enmity between that line and those descendants. And the brother, Cain, the seed of the serpent, and we saw that God put enmity between them by causing the seed of the woman to be those who were born again. God regenerated them 
And thus they call upon the name of the Lord, and they love Him. And that created the enmity. Now as we come to chapter 6, we see that those two lines, the seed of the woman, or through Seth, and the seed of the serpent through Cain, they mix. The Cainite line, the serpent line, the unregenerate line overwhelms the godly line of Seth. Or as the text says, the sons of God married the beautiful daughters of man. Sons of God here refers to the line of Seth. Marrying the line of Cain. That's what's happening in the text. Okay, so you know, I understand that through history, many people have interpreted this to mean the sons of God refer to some non human, angelic type of, I don't know what, that came and married the sons of human beings, I mean, the daughters of human beings, and bore children to them. And you get some weird creature out of it. And the argument for that goes, it says in the text, that they married the daughters of man. Humanity. Therefore, that means all humanity. All the daughters of humanity were being married by another term, sons of God. So therefore, how could that be other human beings since we've already talked all the daughters of man and here's another term, sons of God. It's got to be some non-human type of creature. I just don't think that's the point of the text. First, angelic beings interacting at this point in redemptive history are not there yet. And as we followed from the last sermon from chapter 3, 4, and 5, the narrative is laying out the two streams, the two lines, the line of Seth and the line of Cain. And they're stark in their differences. One is just utterly worldly and godless, and the other is Godward, because they're born again. And when he picks up the line of Seth after the line of Cain, he said stuff about Seth, did not say about the line of Cain. In chapter 5, verses 1 and 3, stressed it twice, that Seth was in the likeness of God. So just reading the story... I think it's natural to understand then, now the sons of God intermixed with the daughters of man to understand the line of Seth, the godly line there. And in the Old Testament, sons of God, the children of God is also a phrase that is used often to refer to, to godly people, Godward people, people who love the Lord. And so this passage is referring to the to the righteous line of Seth that he has laid out so far. He says, okay, now, real quickly, watch what happens in time. They were, as more and more children being born, more and more of those children, they have children, they were marrying based upon she's really beautiful without considering, is she born again? Is she over the line of Seth? or of the line of Cain. That's what he's talking about at this point. So in other words, when you go to chapter 3, verse 15, God's judgment after the fall, 
and the promise to put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. All the way up through our passage, there is this coherency going on. Because what's going to happen is God's going to bring judgment on the whole earth. He is going to kill every human being on earth except for Noah and his family. And this tells you, well, how'd that happen? Because we saw the last time you had a a bunch of godly people on earth. Enoch walked with God and he was not. Lamech, Noah's father, and God, you're going to come. There's this Godwardness there and then he's going to wipe them all out. How come? Well, here's the setup for how come. They started to intermix. And then you come to verse 4. And the passage says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And that word Nephilim, its verb root in the Hebrew means to fall upon. And that's not a good thing. That's... They fell upon us. And it became a noun. It said, these are the ones who fall upon. They're the Nephilim, which means what was happening more and more through the intermarriages was wickedness and evil. They were gaining the reputation of plundering peaceful people with violent raid, raids, etc. So in the text, when he says, this happened when the sons of God, the sons of Seth are intermarrying, and afterward, it just got worse and worse. They were more and more having the qualities of their mom and their grandpa on their mom's side, the Canaanite side, and it got really bad. The unregenerate in its violence was filling its cup to fullness. So let me just do something to restate that. I'm going to paraphrase verse 4, which is Joe's paraphrase so you understand how I'm understanding what he's saying in verse 4. The Nephilim, that is the violent Canite types, were on the earth when the Sethite men began to marry and to mix with the serpent line, and thus afterward there were many more of these violent types as a result of these mixed marriages. These, the offspring, were the mighty men of old, violent Canites, men of renown. And that understanding makes sense then, what you read down at verses 11 to 13. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. How did it get that way? We just read it. The earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And then God continues, and I think, watch, what you see in the passage now, you've got to hear God's mercy here. Because you're going to hear His judgment, and in the next sermon, we'll come to... The flood, it's not a nice children's story. But there's mercy here. And what God is doing is preserving the regenerate 
line. It's a picture he's showing us. He's always going to have them. He'll always have a remnant. Pick up with verse 5. And so the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor. He's of the Seth line. Found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So we have seen that God has created everything for His glory. And to extend that glory, most particularly through human beings, as we sung this morning, and throw your crowns down and adore Him. But we see the earth almost in totality be the opposite of that. Filled with murder, plundering, Violence, the opposite of God's intention. And God cannot remain indifferent. And thus, God's justice to uphold His glory will rise up and it will wipe out humanity, except for one family, eight people. And we'll come there next time. But for the rest of our time, I want to address the crucial verses in chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. And the Lord regretted that He made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart, for God said, I am sorry, or I regret that I have created man. Huge question. How are we to understand that? If God is sovereign, if God is omniscient, has all knowledge, past, present, things that have not yet transpired, he, if, if He knows everything that will be, infallibly knows it, is it possible for God to grieve? Is it possible for God to express anger or regret over something that He has done. He did create. That, that's, we all agree on that. That's clear in Genesis 1. He created man in His own image, and I regret I created him. Did He regret it because He did not know what was going to happen? And it caught Him by surprise. Now, shoot, if I would have known, I would have turned left instead of right. 
back there. I would have not created instead of created. So the simple question is this. Can God express sorrow, anger, regret for an act that he himself has preordained and thus he knew the consequences of it? Can God create man knowing full well that the fall will happen? Knowing full well that the godly line will intermarry with the unregenerate line and the entire earth will be filled with violence. Could he create knowing that and then when it happens, express regret? That's the question. It's an important question because in our day, there are many, more and more, within my big umbrella, evangelicalism, who answer that question this way. No. If God knew, then he could not regret him creating man. And one way they are arguing it is through verses 6 and 7 of our text. And they use it in order to deny that God infallibly knows the future. He can guess really well, but infallibly know for sure? No. Some of you may have read this book. I did, and I really, for the most part, it was a good book. I enjoyed the book, Letters to a Skeptic. Dr. Greg Boyd, a professor at Bethel and a pastor for, for, for many years, and evangelizing his own dad, and, it's, and he's a good writer. But some of the stuff he writes bugs me. Like the following. Quote, In the Christian view, God knows all of reality. Everything there is to know. But to assume he knows ahead of time how every person is going to freely act assumes that each person's free activity is already there to know, even before he freely does it. But it's not. If we have been given freedom, we create the reality of our decisions by making them. And until we make them, they don't exist. Thus, in my view at least, there simply isn't anything to know until we make it there to know. And so God cannot foreknow the good or bad decisions of people that he creates until he creates these people. And they, in turn, create their decisions. That's his redefinition of God's omniscience. And many of us believe that is a denial of God's omniscience. 
Many of you know, I have, I have one mentor I do have in life, I'm happy to say it, I love it, for the last 25 years is Dennis Prager. A religious Jew, not a Christian, this is his view of God too. Richard Rice, another evangelical scholar, says the same thing this way. All that God does not know is the content of future free decisions of human beings. And this is because decisions are not there to know until they occur. And Clark Pinnock, the theologian, he unpacks this viewpoint this way. Decisions not yet made do not exist anywhere to be known, even by God. God can predict a great deal of what we will choose to do, but not all of it, because some of it remains hidden in the mystery of human freedom. In short, and they're saying, God could not infallibly know that Judas was going to betray Jesus. That was a will. It was Judas's will that moved in order to betray him. He may predict it, 99.999999, but God did not know it infallibly. And what they are saying, therefore, Thus, when you read a text like this, see, yes, if God knew that the earth would become so corrupt like that, He could not then, when it happens, say what we see in Genesis. He regretted. That's what they're saying. Therefore, He didn't know it. Infallibly. He did not foresee Genesis chapter 6 and 7. And so the question is, is that true? Is it true that God could only talk like that in Scripture to us, that I regret this? Or that I'm this way towards this person and now I'm against them? Is that possible for God to do that only if He did not foresee what would transpire in human free decisions that now he reacts and responds to. So, in other words, the reason God could grieve and feel sorry and repent according to more and more people nowadays is because he did not foresee that that would happen. And now he regrets question, let me pose it differently. Can God regret His action creating human beings? Take one. Can He regret that in one sense? And concerning the same action, approve of it and not regret it at all. To answer that question, 
I want you to turn to the New Testament for a moment. To the book of Acts. We'll look at another instance of God's action of sending His Son, the Incarnation, and what results from that. He created and there was a result. Genesis 6 and 7 in His judgment and in the flood. He sends His Son to be incarnate. And there's a result of that. Sin and wickedness that killed Him. Actually, let me, I'm going I'm to read, read them both. So let me, let me start with the early church's prayer in chapter 4 of Acts, verse 27 to 28. They're gathered together, and here's, here's how they thought. For truly in this city, God, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Who was gathered together against him? Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And in Peter's first sermon, in chapter 2, verse 23, he declares, This Jesus who was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So in other words, according to these texts, God knew ahead of time that In the sending of His Son, He was sending Him to be killed by sinners sinning against Him. And yet the killing of the Son, the eternal Son, who became one of us, I will contend that the murder and the sin and godlessness that put him to death was even more evil than all the sin in Noah's time. And it is that sin in Noah's time, according to Genesis, that gets God to say, I regret it that I made him. I'm sorry that I did and I'm going to bring judgment and wipe him out. So, if God can regret, if He can feel something of holiness that responds in a perfect righteous anger against unholiness and sin, In Genesis, if he can do that, then could we not assume that he could feel the same way about Judas, Herod, Pilate, and Sanhedrin? That railroaded and murdered the only innocent human being. Could he not also feel that? And yet, we see the text 
says he not only knew it would happen before he sent the angel Gabriel to Mary, but he himself is the one who planned it to happen. Indeed, Isaiah 53 tells us it pleased the Lord to kill Jesus. He must be more complex than we are. It would be wrong to read Isaiah 53. (laughs) Look at them spit on him and punch my eternal son, the only innocent human being. Look at them strip the skin off of his back and nail him to pieces of wood. (laughs) I'm so pleased at it. It's not what the text says. It's not what it means at all. Actually, if you just take that, God can feel anger. But He's also pleased. Not in the same sense, though. In the bigger picture that He's purposing it for. If God is capable of feeling genuine sorrow, indeed, Appropriate wrath against sin and against all the sin and the acts that went against his son to kill him, and he can feel it, then he must be capable of approving of those acts in one sense and in another sense, hating them and being just to judge them when that time comes. Does that make any sense? Okay. Well then, if that makes sense there, we go back to Genesis. If it's conceivable in the incarnation and death of the Son for God to not say, I love sin, great. I love what the Sanhedrin's doing. He doesn't do that. You can even say, he regrets that. But in another way, I purposed and I planned it and it's glorious in the big picture. Then can we not see the same thing in Genesis chapter 6? God knew it would come. The answer isn't that God doesn't know what's going to happen in the future because that's left up to the sovereignty of human free will and then he finds out what's going to happen and then responds... And so as we approach Genesis chapter 6, and God regretted that He created man, we should probably slow down and be very cautious before we draw on biblical conclusions. Just for a moment, that word to regret, I regret, Hebrew word, the root is naham, we see the same word used in 1 Samuel 15, 11, very similarly to this. Quote, I, God, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. 
in about 15 other times he uses that same word about himself, regretting. Don't jump to unwarranted conclusions yet. That's right. God chose Saul. Read the text. He did. And now, with Saul's disobedience, one after another, and this one, just that was it. That's the line. I told you to kill everything. You didn't do it. You bring it back. Samuel confronts him, and I regret, and he's rejecting Saul, and he's given the kingdom to another. But in Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, same word, Naham, we read this. God is not man. He's not a human being. He's not a finite creature that he should lie. Or the son of man that he should, and here's the word, naham, that he should regret, or translate it this way in ESV, that he should change his mind. No, he doesn't change his mind. Well, you chose Saul, and now you reject Saul. And you said, with the same word, I changed my mind. What are you going to do with it? In 1 Samuel 15, verse 29, in the same context of rejecting Saul, we read this. And also, the glory of Israel, that's a term for God right here, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. See, God chooses Saul. Then down the line, Saul, that's it, too far, it's time, cutting you off. I regret that I chose you. And through Samuel, he tells him he's taken the kingdom away. And in that same context, Saul runs after Samuel, please get God to change his mind and not reject me. And God says, I'm not a man that I would change my mind. What do we do with it? First, don't think that the human authors, editors, are confused. More importantly, don't think that the Holy Spirit who inspired the text is confused. But maybe we should just take the step that says, I guess there is a sense in which God can feel regret and express it to finite creatures in time, in space. And there's a sense in which God cannot at all ever change His mind. That's not breaking the rules of logic, of non-contradiction. Because the key is, in a very different sense, Not A can be A and not A at the same time. And in the same sense, it's a very different sense. And so the assertion, when he says in the text, that I'm not a man that I should regret, what is he doing? It's intended to keep us human, finite creatures from making God exactly like one of us. For understanding when he expresses in His Word, things about His person, emotion, feeling, do not put Him in our finite, creaturely box. That's what He's saying. 
that God's regret is not like the way we regret. I regret stuff all the time. I even talk to myself about it and call myself names like stupid. Why did I do that? Because I wouldn't have done it. That's, God's never like that. Different than that. He's all-knowing, perfectly infallible. He's never like us in that he is never caught off guard about something that transpires in human history. Oh, okay. I'll make another chess move here. See if I can defeat that. Didn't see that coming. God's mind changes in a sense. In another sense, it's impossible for God to ever change in His omniscience and His eternality. God never has a, a thought that is subsequent to another thought, which is all of our experience. But He can communicate things to the creature in the way that He wants in our language. So His mind, when it changes, now I regret that I made Saul king. I regret that I made man. Why does He do it? Not because He's responding to unforeseen circumstances that now have happened, but because he has ordained from the foundation of the world that his mind throughout and in relation to the creation will have appropriate responses when in time and space those things transpire. From before creation, he was perfectly set to respond in the flood. And an appropriate holiness of judgment. That's who He is. God fully knew from eternity past what would unfold in the mixing of the Sethite line and the Cainite line. And therefore He fully knew and I will appropriately respond and I will have it written in Scripture this way. I'm angry. Perfectly so. Expressed through I regret it. Not that I would ever change the ordination of creating. It's not a surprise. In the bigger picture of what I'm accomplishing, it's beautiful. It's perfect. And therefore, his choosing to perform acts, whether the incarnation of Christ, whether the creation of man, that then will have things happen subsequently that are evil things. That is a choosing God has done with the full awareness of every future consequence and response within the creature and with His own response to it. Okay? We should just have a discussion now. But I do, before I close, I want to say, I know that's a deep theological discussion or monologue. 
I just gave. But I want to say, I hope you don't think it's impractical in any way. This is not just theoretical musings on God and His omniscience and what does it mean. It's very practical to broken, sinful, particularly saints, Christians. There's pain in life. There's death in life. There's all kinds of human willings that happen that bring horrific changes in our experience down here. To understand where are you, God? It's huge. It has very important practical implications. That's my position. And let me just say, for, for, for people like Pastor Greg Boyd, that's why he comes up with that too. I give him the absolute benefit of the doubt. He's dealing with real people. And he wants practical answers to help them. And that's what leads him to the conclusion that God does not foreknow all human choices. And therefore, a human choice that may have killed your daughter, he didn't know. So I want to comfort you with that. And I'm not mocking that. I'm just, I, that's, it's the motive. And I, and I get that because let me let, let, me let you hear him on this it, with a pastoral heart. Greg Boyd writes, Within the limits set by God, an individual may purpose to do things which are utterly at odds with God's ultimate purpose. Thus, when an individual inflicts pain on another individual, I do not think we can go looking for the purpose of God in the event. I know Christians frequently speak about the purpose of God in the midst of a tragedy caused by someone else. There was a young girl this year at Bethel, Aaron's College, graduated from, in, in, in Minneapolis-St. Paul era. There was a young girl this year at Bethel who was killed by a tr drunk driver. A lot of students we're wondering what purpose God had in taking her home. But this I regard to simply be a piously confused way of thinking. The drunk driver alone is to blame for the girl's untimely death. The only purpose of God in the whole thing is His design to allow morally responsible people the right to decide whether to drink responsibly or not. Now, there are many who think that that answer to the Christian is meant to bring comfort to them. 
And, and, and maybe it does to some. But I find it ultimately very discomforting and unbiblical. And so before I, over the next 10 minutes when I close, what I want to do, I want you to turn to Hebrews. I want to bring a practical text also then to bear on this question. Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 3 through 11. The Hebrew author is also wanting to be very down to earth and practical in real lives that he's dealing with. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In other words, consider Jesus. He was murdered. In your struggle... Hebrew Christians, and I'm writing to, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In other words, as Jesus did. It hadn't gotten that bad for you yet, the sin against you. And have you forgotten the exhortation addressed to you as sons? Here's his practicality. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom His Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But God our Father disciplines us for our good, so that we may share His holiness. Yes, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's his practical counsel. Let's slowly look at it. What he's talking about in the context is persecution. He's therefore talking about pain that is wrought by the human wills of others. As it was against Jesus that put him to death. And therefore, differing degrees of pain hasn't gotten to the place of death yet, but it could. Imprisonment, it did. Wrought by other human willing agents. The writer to Hebrews calls that the discipline of a loving 
Father who has a purpose in it. A purpose for the growth in your holiness. So there's individuals inflicting pain on others and it's interpreted in the scripture as the discipline of a loving father with a goal, a purpose. I don't ever want to give the counsel There is no purpose of God in what transpired to you. Most of the time, I have no idea what it is other than the generalities from Scripture. That I usually stay away from and just cry with people. But to say God had nothing to do with it is utterly disheartening and discomforting to me. The writer to the Hebrews he looks to the ultimate purpose of God, even in the pain inflicted upon his children by the will and hands of other sinners. So go back, look at verse 3. He says, Jesus is your model. Consider Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Consider it why? so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So immediately after that then, he tells him in verse 4, in your struggle, Christians, against sin, here in the text, he means others sinning against you. That just seems to be the flow of the text. Jesus endured hostility from sinners. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point where they put you on a cross or... You're dead or shed your blood yet. So what he's saying is these Christians, they've been experiencing painful things at the hands of sinners. Just not to the point of bloodshed yet. And then in verses 5 and 7, the writer interprets that experience that experience of the hostility of sinners against them this way. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you, Christian, as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. Why? Because the Lord loves or for the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline, that, that, that loving discipline, that you have to endure. You endure it because God's treating you as sons. And that word, you have to endure, is clearly flashing back to Jesus in verse 3 when he said, He, Jesus, endured hostility by sinners. So we must endure certain things in life 
even the results of other human beings' sinful wills of being drunk and driving and killing. And he calls this endurance, saying, come to the Father, trust Him. The discipline of a loving Father. And then, one more thing, what follows in the text is a description of the very purpose that God has in the experiences He providentially brings into our life, including the painful ones. He disciplines us for our good. For our good. That we may share His holiness. Yes, we know absolutely, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Paul will just say the same thing another way. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. That's why to me it is really grieving to have fellow evangelical theologians and teachers and pastors depart from the historic, biblical understanding of God, His sovereignty, and His omniscience, denying that He even has knowledge of future human choices. Jesus purchased all of our salvation. All of it. He purchased our new birth so that we will believe. And He purchased our sanctification. Whether it lasts a few weeks and we're dead or 80 years and God is in total control of it. We can trust Him because Jesus shed His blood for all those who love Him or will love Him. Therefore, we know we can't lose. Even as we cry, and you should cry, even though we want to avoid pain and if a car's coming, jump out of the way. Don't be silly about this. But as life rolls over, God is loving us in Christ. And so, as we will be singing and passing out the bread and the cup in remembrance, yes, 
He has me carved in the palm of his hand. My loved ones, my brothers and sisters in Christ, we can trust him. We can continue to endure. Let's keep in mind as we're singing and preparing to pray over and drink from the cup and eat the body of Christ together, keep in mind the words of the brothers as they wrote 400 years ago in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Come on up. God executes His will in the works of creation and providence according to His infallible foreknowledge and the free counsel of His will. For Christ has caused all those things to work together for good to those who love Him. Amen.